Let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 as we come to one of the most beloved sections of the Bible. We come to the classic, uh, what many call the Hall of Faith. Of course, the great issue with this kind of passage is that we uh, we come in it, we think we already know it. And so why should I even come to church if we're talking about the sort of stuff? I already know Hebrews chapter 11, or I already know these Old Testament people. I already know about Noah. I mean, I've seen the movies. You know, I already know about uh, the story of Cain and Abel. What's the, what's the big deal here? And yet, <clears throat> we have to ask the question as we come to this text, why is it here in the first place? Why is there a huge chapter, a lengthy chapter that gives case study after personal example about the impact of persevering faith? Well, because we need it. We need it. It's actually a, a beautiful thing that, as we saw last week, the author gives these basic operating principles of what faith is, the kind of faith that helps you to persevere. And now he's going to give us, we'll look at the first three this, this evening. Now he's going to give us case study after personal scenario on what faith does. What does it mean to have the kind of faith that's not just like weak or, you know, nominal Christianity, uh, but the kind of faith that, well, that holds fast to God, the kind of faith that endures, the kind of faith that lasts, that matters. And so, like any good preacher, the preacher here gives a lot of examples. Unlike me and most other preachers, his examples are not what I had for lunch this morning. Examples are Old Testament figures. Let's look at three of them, beginning in verse 4. We'll read through verse 7. Let's uh, pay careful attention to what the author of Hebrews and what God have for us this evening. We are told, beginning in verse 4, that by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, Though he died, he still speaks by faith. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. But since the reading of God's word, let me ask you to go once more briefly to his throne room to pray that he would bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Lord, we hear your word with our ears. We pray that your spirit will work it into our souls. I pray that you would illuminate this text by illuminating our hearts. And we ask that you would help us to see what faith is and how it works. I pray this in the name of the faithful one, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have these three examples, right? We have these three examples that are drawn to show you how amazing faith is. Faith is kind of that abstract thing that you know, sometimes we, we get jazzed up as Protestants or Presbyterians about discussing justifying faith. But I've mentioned before, he's not talking about that kind of faith particularly. He's speaking about the kind of faith that will keep you and your grandkids 
will keep you until you have grandkids or will keep you that you can pass on to your grandkids. He's saying to, to Christians who are struggling against the odds, here's what you need. You need the kind of faith that is the conviction of things not seen. We're told in verse 2, by it the people of old receive their commendation. And then we see with Abel, we see with Enoch, we see implicit with Noah, they're all commended. Three of these Old Testament figures are commended. They're commended for faith. And we get three kind of concentric circle, larger pictures of faith. We, we begin with Abel. We begin with two brothers. One man is different than the other guy. Two brothers. We go then to Enoch. One man against the whole family tree. Finally, Noah. One family contra mundum against the whole world. So the author kind of goes from small to medium to large in terms of the impact of faith. Now, the point is simply, the point is simply this. Whether you are the weird brother or whether you're the only ugly duckling in your family or whether the whole world thinks you are crazy, God says, I keep you. I keep you. You know, sometimes the issue here, before we get to Abel, sometimes the issue, we think of faith as a substance. We think of faith as a thing. You have it or you don't. We think we can measure faith. You got 10%, I got 20%. But this chapter shows us, as we get into these examples, faith is not a pill that you take. There's no pill you can take. You can't go down to Kroger and get the pill. You can't even go to the New Publix and, and get the pill. It's not something that you take. It's not a substance. Rather, faith is the life lived in response to the God that you have. It's the life of faith. That's why in, in, even in our confession of faith, chapter 14 of the Westminster Confession, we're told that faith looks different depending upon who you are and where you are. Faith feels different depending upon how God's word hits your particular scenario. It's not a cookie cutter thing. God does not want clones. He instead wants faith that responds best in every situation. So here's the first three. Number one, Abel. Abel. The first thing we learn this evening about faith is Abel and his sacrifice. It teaches us that faith is seen in the worship of our heart. Faith is seen in the worship of our heart. We, we read here, verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So back up, you know the story, don't you? Adam and Eve, they have kids, they have Cain and Abel. And they're very similar. These are two, two guys, two brothers. They have the same parent. They have the same family structure. There's the same mix of nature and nurture in their upbringing. They have the same food they eat. They have the same stuff they drink. They even both go to church. They both worship. They're both sitting in the pew. They're both right there. You, know, you would see them and you would say, hey, they're like two peas in a pod. They're very similar. And yet, on the inside, they're totally different. The Bible loves to do this, by the way. This is not uncommon. All over the place, the Bible loves to give you couples, pairs. And they look totally the same on the outside. And yet on the inside, one of them is very different than the other. It's very, it happens all the time. Isaac and Ishmael, we've seen it with Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau, they can look very similar, and yet... On the inside, they're very, very different. They both go, they both bring offerings to God, but they're totally different. 
And yet they prove one key point. If they go into God, they bring an offering. Why do they bring an offering? We're told here that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. But Cain offered one too. Why did they bring a sacrifice? Why did they bring an offering? They understood something that I think you implicitly know, but you don't talk about it. You implicitly know, we all implicitly know, that in our relationships, whether with God or with other people, you can't just walk in. You can't just go as you are. If you want to be approved by other people, you have to control what they see. That's what an offering is. That's what an offering. I offered you this evening a bow tie. And some of y'all are going to tell me afterwards it was an acceptable offering. It was a not acceptable offering, and that's perfectly fine too. We see this in the political arena. You have elections, and politicians are offering you all sorts of sacrifices. They're saying, my plan is better than my opponent's plan. My opponent's a scumbag. I'm great, whatever it is. What they're saying is, accept me, approve me. But they don't let you see who they really are. They don't let you see what they're like behind closed doors. They completely control what you see of them. And they come to you with a sack. They come to you with an offering. They bring something to you. And that's true for you as well. Whenever you go into any, I guarantee you that you thought about what you were going to wear this evening. You thought about what you're going to wear in a church tonight. You didn't just slap on anything. Maybe you did, I suppose, but I don't think so. Because the thing that scares you is the thing that scares Cain and Abel is that God would see them for who they are. The thing that scares you is that God would see you for who you really are. That's why, as we come to Cain and Abel, we come to the fact they offered things up. That can seem foreign to us, but it's not actually at all foreign to you. You you come and you bring something tonight to other people. You come and you offer them to God. You think, I'm going to evening church. I'm really doing good for God. And yet what we have here, of course, is that God accepts one guy and not the other guy. We're told that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And of course, the one detail we're given about them is what they do for a living. You know, Abel, Abel uh, likes animals. One of them likes agriculture. One of them likes animals. One of them brings grain. One of them brings animal meat. They both bring something. So why does God say yes to Abel and no to Cain? Is God just like a meanie? Is he just kind of, is he randomly, you know, he's like flipping the coin saying, out oh, today I'll take Abel and not Cain? One very popular answer is that Abel offered a certain type of sacrifice. He brought a bloody sacrifice. He brought, he brought an animal sacrifice. And uh, preachers make a lot of hay of this. They, that They say, ah, oh, Abel knew that his parents needed an animal skin to cover their nakedness in the garden. He understood that a life was needed, that blood was needed for his sin to come to God. The problem is, of course, that when you look at the actual text of Genesis chapter 4, that's not the Hebrew word used. It does not say Abel brought a guilt offering or a sin offering. He brought a tribute offering. I mean, if you want to get technical about it, it's the Hebrew word minha. That doesn't mean anything to, to, to y'all, but the point is that it's just an offering. He's saying, hey, I love you, God. It's, it's, 
what he what he does simply because he loves the Lord. It's not a question of guilt. It's a question of gratitude. It's a, it's a question of devotion, not death vicarious. See, what the Bible is actually saying here, there is a key difference between Cain and Abel, but it's not what they brought. It's why they brought it. It's the disposition of their heart, not the type of sacrifice. The disposition of Cain's heart is very simple. I've done a lot. I've accomplished a lot. I worked hard. And God, here's a little bit from my work. You're welcome. I'm waiting. Bless me. The decision is, you should be really thankful, God, that I even came to church. That I even gave you anything. But what does Abel say? Well, the text tells us in your chapter 4 that Abel brought the first fruits. He brought the first part. He brought the best part. He did not uh, do his thing and then give the sloppy seconds over to God. He demonstrated that the God was first in his life. It's a perfect illustration of what real faith is. Abel is commended for this. This is what real faith does. Real faith is a heart-level instinct that you give everything to God. God is the first consideration. That will be true with your money, of course, when you offer that. That will be true with your time. That will be true with what you do for a living. It will be true with your family. God will have what is best to give to him. And, of course, the problem is that, <clears throat> you know, for, for most of us, we, we are more like Cain than Abel. We're Cain's. We're not Abel's. And there's one easy way to tell if you're a Cain or an Abel. Super easy way. What do you think about Abel's? What do you think about people who are really devoted to God? What do you think about them? Do you think they're all a bunch of hypocrites? What do you think about it? Why did Cain kill his brother? Why was he so furious that he killed his brother? Why did he have hatred in his heart? It's not simply that God wouldn't accept his sacrifice. It's that he was furious at Abel's free devotion to the Lord. Abel made him look bad. Abel made him look bad. Because Abel wasn't a faker. He wasn't a poser. Cain was just trying to get God off his back. But Abel looked so different. It upset Cain. That's the lesson here about real faith. What is real faith? Putting God first, not just Sunday night, but all the week. Not just when we're together at church and we're all, you know, wearing something. But when you're doing your business, when you're treating your clients, when you're uh, working with your students, when you're with your friends, when you're with your neighbors, the driving force must be that Christ is first in our lives. And if we're honest, we come out looking like Cain more than Abel most of the time. I mean, if, if, you, and, if you and I were, be, were to be really pressed by somebody, if somebody just went through all of your spending habits, or if somebody went through the schedule of your day, if God were to replay your life on the on a screen up here, even your Sundays, you there'd be a point where you'd get angry. I mean, we'd start by rationalizing it. We'd say, oh, well, you know, I was a little late. I was a little sleepy. I was tired. I was whatever. I was stressed. You don't get my life. But eventually there'd come a point where you'd get angry like Cain. And we would say, you don't have the right to show my life on the screen. You don't have the right to get into my business. But the problem is God does have that right. 
And that's what makes Cain so infuriating. Cain's anger against Abel, yes, he's mad at Abel, but he's really mad at God. Because we, re- he, we resist his call to give ourselves in faith. Why do we resist it? Look at what happened to Abel. Verse 4. Through his faith, though he died. What happened to Abel? He died. What happened to the guy who had sold out for Jesus? He died. <laughs> he, he devoted himself to the Lord and he was shipped. He was murdered. You don't want that kind of Christianity. You don't want that kind of Christianity. I don't want it. We want, as Flannery O'Connor said this morning, we want fluffy, comfy, easy grace. I mean, for one thing, it's awkward to be around people who are devoted to God. Of course, the other question is, do we want to die? Are we so devoted to God that we're willing to be so free with ourselves, so grateful to God that we might die? It's interesting that the author says, Abel still speaks because he's dead, you know. He's dead, but he still speaks. Billions of people have heard the blood of Abel crying out. His faith is still speaking. I suppose there's a lesson for you and for us. What do you think your great-great-grandkids, I mean, in two generations, three generations, what do you think your great-great-grandkids are going to say about you? If you want to think about that, what do you know about your own great-great-grandparents? Do you know much? I I think I had a doctor in Mississippi. That's about all I, I know. He was some sort of Christian, as far as I can tell. That's about all I know. Will the story be that your great-great-grandkids, the one thing they know about you, is that you're a doctor in Mississippi, or is that your faith still speaks? That's the question. That's the question we have to wrestle with here. How can your faith speak? How did Abel's faith speak? Abel did not hate Cain. The text in Genesis 4 is very clear. Cain hated Abel. Cain's always hate Abel's. But Abel did not hate Cain. Cain felt Abel was arrogant. But Abel, Abel was so free because he understood the gospel of grace. That's why his faith still speaks. So if you want to know, are you a Cain or are you an Abel? Do you hate your brother? That's 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 a very simple question. That's Abel's faith, right? Faith as the worship of the heart. Second, we see Enoch. We get the one of the most mysterious men in the Bible. Verse 5. We see here faith, not as the worship of the heart, but faith as a walk with God. Enoch, we're told famously, verse 5 of our text, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Enoch was taken. Enoch walked with God, And we're told here in in verse 5 that he pleased, he pleased God. He pleased God. Now, Enoch is not just one out of two brothers. Enoch is one guy out of a whole family tree. One guy, the only Christian out of the whole family tree. We know that because if you were to turn to chapter 5 of Genesis, you were to read through it. There would be one refrain that would keep hitting over and over and over again. 
It's not the beautiful chorus of the first chapter of the Bible. The beautiful chorus of the opening chapter of creation is God saw and it was good. God saw and it was good. That's the light side. God saw and it was good. But by the time you get to chapter five, things ain't good. What's the refrain of that chapter where Enoch is and he died? And he died. He lived so-and-so years. He fathered so-and-so and he died. He died, 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 death, 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 death. And then Enoch comes along and he breaks the pattern and he was not because God took him. You know, if you read the, the Jewish rabbis, they go gaga for Enoch. They love Enoch. There are all sorts of things that are written about Enoch. And I don't know if any of them actually happen, but he, he, he was seen as a Jewish hero. But in the pages of scripture, we just know two things about him. God loved him. And God took him home without dying. God loved him. And God took him home without dying. God loved him because he walked with God. So what's the point here? Why does the author of Hebrews bring us out when it comes to our faith? Very simple. Enoch shows us that faith is a lifelong walk. Faith is just a long walk with God all your life with his word. It's just a long walk. Now, my, my dear wife loves to go on a walk. I enjoy them and the dog gets to go. Because like many guys, I need to do something. I have to cut my hands while I'm walking. But we walk. We, we have a good time. I know many of y'all probably enjoy long walks. This is one of the most beautiful things that we are told about any Christian. Enoch walked with God. It tells us that being a Christian is not rocket science. Being a faithful Christian is not rocket science. You don't have to have some grand experience. You don't need an out-of-body experience to be a Christian. You don't need to know a celebrity Christian. You don't need to know Hebrew to be a saint. You don't need to wear yourself out making Christian posters. You don't need to march in some protest. You don't need to bake bread straight from the grain. It's not a question of strength or smart or talent. It's not a question of efforts. It's not a question of success. It is doing what Jacob eventually did. It is simply grabbing on to Jesus Christ. It is taking God by the hand and living in his presence. God is not quite so interested in your big dreams as you think he is, as we think he is. I even mentioned this this morning. I hate to mention it twice, but I'll do it again. I remember going to plenty of conferences as a teenager. And they all run together in my mind because they all had a very similar message. The message was, you're the generation. You're the generation that can do big things for God. Hurrah! God is not so interested in our big plans for him. He is not so interested in our big plans for him. He is interested simply in this. Be with me. Be with me. Do your common everyday business with God in mind. We don't like this, of course, because we prefer to add up all the things we do in one hour and say, that's enough, God. That's enough God time. Or we prefer to say, oh, it's a God thing when I found the parking spot. And we ignore the drive getting to the parking spot. That's not a God thing, apparently. We prefer to say, God, take my productivity, take my hours worked. Here they are. Don't take my heart. Take the time I spend only on my knees praying or take the time I spend doing X so-called Christian activity, but don't take my life. Don't take my heart. We conjure up ways of dealing with Jesus Christ without dealing with ourselves. 
And so it's no surprise that uh, we don't know what it's like to walk with God in the way Enoch did. Because we make Christianity a burden. That's not easy. That's not light. And rather, instead of that, what does the author of Hebrews tell us about real faith? Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God, two things, whoever would draw near to God, first, must believe that he exists, second, that he rewards those who seek him. God is far more interested in that you believe in him and walk with him than he is in all your laurels, than he is in all your plans. And what kind of reward is this? He rewards those who seek him. What is the reward that God gives to seekers? There's a lot of talk in the last 30 years about seekers, so-called. But what does God give as a reward to people who seek him? Is it money? Is it a long life? Is it a good family? No, 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 no. The reward is not the kind of reward that you think of. It's the reward of just being with God. You know what this feels like. Think about the last time you spent two hours in the presence of a good friend. And you were just friending together. You, there's no plan. There's no, act, there's no agenda. You were just being good friends. Or, or your spouse. Think about the last time you spent just an hour or two with your spouse. And there was nothing in it for you. You didn't do it because you, you, you had some ulterior motive. There was no goal. You were just being with them. Was that a reward? I think you would say it is, surely. Infinitely more true with God. So it is with God. Faith is the worship of the heart, able. Faith is walking with God. That's enough. That's enough to be with God. Jacob learned that. I'm in the presence of God. Have you learned that? Finally, we see that faith here is word-directed. We see that faith from Noah in his example, we find that faith is directed by God's work. We're told about this ark. It's the building of the ark. It's the Noah's ark. It's a huge ark. Three floors in this ark. <clears throat> We're told in the opening chapters of Scripture in chapter 6 that the world was a very evil place in the days of Noah. We're told about all the evil that occurred. We're told that Noah was laughed at. He's mocked. He's building a big boat. There's no water. It's like if you were to go to Kansas and build the Titanic, people would say, you're, you're an idiot. Everybody thinks he is ridiculous. But he knows he's right. He proves he's right. And he proves them all wrong. We're told in verse 7 that he did this in a certain demeanor. He did this with the demeanor of reverent fear. He did this out of reverent fear. He did it to save his household. He did it to save his family. So we move from one brother out of two to Enoch, one man out of a family. Now we move to one family out of the whole world. We're told that Noah preferred the smile of God to the smile of man. We're told that he was delivered from the fear of man because he had learned the sweetness of fearing God. That word fear is not, I know it's Halloween season, I know it's horror film season, but the word fear here is not meant to be terror. It's meant to be reverent awe before our God. Enoch 
stood, uh, Noah stood against the whole world because he allowed God's word to direct his life. We're told with Enoch that he believed in God. But we're told with Noah, he didn't just believe in God. A lot of folks can believe in God. You can believe uh, abstractly in the presence of a higher power. Everybody who goes through AA does that or is told to at least pretend like that's the case. We are told here that he did not just believe in God. Rather, he believed what God said. We're told in verse 7, he was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Noah didn't just believe in God, but he believed God when God spoke. That's what faith is. Faith is not just believing in God but it's actually letting what God says about reality define what you believe about reality. Letting what God says about the universe, the world, and everything be what you believe about the universe, the world, and everything instead of what simply you see or what simply you feel or what your uh, uh, blood sugar level is or your brain chemistry says you must be. You let what God says, no matter how wacky it may be, be your definition. There's an old Puritan named Thomas Manton. He wrote on this text in Hebrews 11. He says this. He said the difference between Noah and everybody else was was this. The people of the world did not tremble with fear until the water reached the rooftops. But Noah feared when God merely spoke. Noah feared when God merely spoke. This is faith. Noah says, I'm not going to be defined by what my eyes simply see. The sun's shining now. I know that won't last. The birds are chirping. I know they won't last. The people laughing at me. I know they won't last. I will be defined by what God says. That's faith. So I suppose the question, of course, is who's defining you, world? What's defining you right now? Maybe you're, you're bitter. Maybe you're an angry person. Maybe you're resentful. Somebody did something to you and you don't like it. You feel wounded. Okay. You want to get out of that cycle? You can either be moved by the things you see and the things you feel, or you can be moved by things that are unseen. You're going to be moved by things that you can see. You can be moved by things, as Noah was, things that are yet unseen. Here are the things you see. The bills on your table, they pile up. Here are the things you see. The sickness, the doctor keeps telling you, you need to come back for more tests. It's not good. Here are the things that, that, that are seen, the critiques that continue to come. And then here on the other hand, it's God's word. The things that are seen, things as yet unseen. Or to put it differently, you can look at the wounds that you have, the wounds that people have inflicted on you or the wounds that you've inflicted on other people, or you can look at the wounds of Christ. What does true faith do? True faith is moved not by the marks that are seen, but the marks that are unseen. In other words, if you look at the cross, real faith believes that Christ died not just vaguely for people, but Christ died for me. This was Luther's point. Christ died for me. We're told a a final thing about Noah's faith. Verse 7. We're told that his life, his faith, by this, he condemned the world. And what does that mean? I mean, if you just read it on, on the surface level, it sounds like, all the, all the uh, uh, angry Christians that the media like to publicize, all the, the Christians that kind of get the most airtime, that run around saying all sorts of upsetting things. 
That this word condemnation does not mean Noah went around screaming everybody. It does not mean he, he constantly found fault with people. It does not mean that he was a constant critic, a grump. Rather, to condemn the world means he proved the world wrong and he kept standing against it. He proved the world wrong and he kept standing against it. How could Noah do that for years? For, I'm not, not, talking about, not, not talking about one second. How could he do it over and over and over again? Because he had faith. He trusted in the invisible God. He had character. He had moral energy inside him. And if you're a Christian, know that you have that same moral power inside you, even if you don't feel like it. Because when you receive Christ, you become partakers of the divine nature. The law is written on your heart. The Holy Spirit comes in. And therefore, as a Christian, you can condemn the evils of the world. You can condemn the injustice you see around you. You can condemn all that is seen. How do you do it? You become a humble person. You become a forgiving person. You become a bold person. You act in a way that looks crazy to other people because like Abel, your devotion is free. Like Enoch, you're in God's presence. Like Noah, you are able to stand fast in a, in a world gone mad. So the golden ticket question for a faithful Christian is this. Is anybody in your life making fun of you? I find that's a good, just a good question in general, but as a Christian particularly, we have to ask this question. Is anybody making fun of you? If you live an unselfish life, if you live an honest life, if you live a humble life, wherever you live, whatever country, whatever time period you live, if you live a life like that, where you are free and generous and you're not self-centered and you try to be humble, people are going to laugh at you. You will look as silly as Noah. You're not building an ark, but you will look as stupid as that because of your moral character. So is anybody making fun of you? If they're not, is it because you look like all of them? That's faith, right? Faith, faith are these three things. It shows itself in the habits of our heart, the worship of our heart. It shows itself in our daily walk, our yearly walk. Over and over again, it shows itself in our following his word. So the questions we have to ask as we head out are this. Are you here truly to worship God? Are you prioritizing him? Are you a pleasure like Enoch to the Lord as you walk with him? And are you allowing his word to mark out your pilgrim trail? In other words, when was the last time you allowed the Bible, his word, to change you in an area that you thought you were right. When was the last time that happened to you? It's never happened to you. You're not, you're not showing faith. That's not, that's not a sign of faith. It's a sign of you simply trusting what everybody else says. So you see the power here of faith. By faith, Abel was commended as righteous. By faith, Enoch was commended as pleasing God. By faith, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's the power of faith, friends. You need it. I need it. And it's found not in looking to faith, of course, but looking to Christ, the object of our faith. Let's pray. Oh, glorious and mighty God, we thank you. You give us these scenarios, these pictures of faith. 
not merely as fun stories, but as markers of what you want us to do, of what you call us to be. We pray for more faith. We ask that you would help us in our lack of faith, and that ultimately you would give us Christ, the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. Finish us more, we pray this week in Christ's name. Amen.